Welcome. Bonjour. Vous écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. You're listening to the Dirty Feet podcast on the No More Radio Network. Nous sommes vos animateurs et animatrices. We are your hosts, Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon et Stéphanie Morin-Robert. Listen in. Écoutez. We're going to move you. Hello, you're listening to the Dirty Feet Podcast. I'm Katie Belanger, and I'm here at Studio 303, the beautiful, shining Studio 303. Um, we're actually in the studio recording the podcast. It's very enjoyable already uh, to be here with Miriam Genestier, who's the artistic and general director of the studio, and then also Andrea Joy Rideout, who is one of the most senior staff members. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some giggling so maybe we'll get into that and um i'm i want to just jump right in and talk about um studio 303 and its uh its activities its mandate its place in the community and then also what is this cabaret tolé that's going to happen on saturday the 19th um and why a cabaret tolé so um starting with Studio 303. Studio 303 is a place that supports live art. So um, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, but with a focus on dance. And I'm interested to understand it's, you've been here a long time, Miriam, but, um, but you are not a founding member of Studio 303. So maybe we could discuss a little bit about the foundation and uh, of the studio, and then a little maybe like a little piece of highlights of how the history has gone on because now we're in our 26th year of the studio. Okay, you want me to talk about the founding of it? Yes. Yeah, please. so it was founded in 1989 by three uh, choreographers um, who wanted, you know, they were just resource sharing. They wanted a space where they could rehearse, uh, teach, so earn a bit of an income and also show their work in development. So, and it's fun to go back because actually... Really, those founding pillars are, well, they're the foundation, and they still are as much as it's changed. Um, and two of the members, uh, I think, yeah, Joe Leslie was one, and she left perhaps, uh, I think, after a few months, if I'm not mistaken. And Isabel Van Grimmed, after about a year, and Martha Carter stayed on for five years. Um, and then perhaps shifted to more of a board role or, you know, she was kind of always involved and a bit of a benefactor in the early days uh, and a real leader. So, and I, I, I came on board very early with Paul Kasky. He was, uh, he was a dance, he was dancing for her and um, was a kind of self-taught technician, lighting designer, and was doing maintenance, cleaning, and I was doing administration, but just in exchange for classes at the beginning. So we were both self-taught and grew in the studio, and I guess after five years, Martha said, you know, I'm, I'm not even here. I'm always on tour with Schwinard, so can you guys uh, yeah, take over? So we, we took over the co-direction. Ooh. And, um, yeah, and then the studio's really, it's kept its foundation, but it's changed a lot over the years. Uh, it's always had a lot of interdisciplinary activity. The workshop programming has always been the backbone. Um, we had a lot of signature events that lasted 
maybe f you know four editions, like uh, the Home Show or Bruit du Noir, which went on for almost ten years, Vernissage Danse, something like 140 seven of them. <laughs> and, and I guess our specialty was short works and things that brought a bunch of artists together. Um, and uh, things have changed in the past three years. So we're, we're getting a little more focused, a, a lot less on presenting and more on uh, supporting artists at different stages of their career and development. Maybe you can tell me about um, one of the things that um, I love about Studio 303 is the training aspect. So there's always, um, there are many uh, ways to train as a professional dancer in Montreal. The RQD offers amazing classes. The Circuit is offering things. But one of the things that I think is, is very interesting about Studio 303 is the diversity of the offerings in the morning. Um, the Atelier Pro, the, the professional um, workshops and also the the depth of the work in these workshops and the ongoing you have many artists who come back year after year and teach um so there's both a development of these um these teachers and their ongoing um professional development in their teaching practice but also it gives the the dance community and also the artistic community more widely um because I've been here many times when there have been people in the class who are by no means uh, a professional dancer. Um, gives this this basis of training that's just really diverse. So I'm I I can't even imagine how much fun it is to put together that offering. And so maybe um, you could tell me a little bit about how that gets put together and. Um, why it is that that continues to be a real backbone of what Studio 303 does. It's funny that you ask that because uh, that programming the workshops is probably the thing I thought about the least in a sense. It was the hardest thing to put down on paper when I went away on sabbatical on how to program the workshops and I realized that so much of it was intuitive. Um, there's kind of, I guess, um, improvised logarithm things going on in my brain where I'm seeking a balance between just teachers that are popular or who get, you know, or who, and who've been coming back year after year and have kind of fan base, you know, and then new workshops and then stuff that's going to please the people that are into somatics and body awareness and then, but then keeping some real edgy stuff in there. And so that was so hard to try to quantify and, <laughs> Um, create logic around it, you know. Um, but it's funny because uh, this week I just did a workshop and it's the first time I've done one probably in that yeah, I attended it in five years and it's a and it's fun to put it together, but it's a lot more fun if if you take them to. <laughs> and I I took it and it was really gratifying because it was the. It's not often that I um, push a workshop through out of personal interest, and I'm a bit conflicted about that. Uh, you know, what's the balance? How much should be just things that were recommended by the outside or applied? Or and this was really someone I really wanted to invite. And I um I do a lot of tango outside of Studio 303, and it's it's dance, but it's a completely separate community, especially the queer tango community, which is already a little separate from the bigger tango community. So this is um, a queer tango teacher, but who has 30 years experience and a really solid background um, in body-mind centering, authentic movement, a bit of Alexander technique. 
so I asked her to create a hybrid workshop that would draw on all of that. And it was really fantastic. It went so well, and I would say it was about a third professional contemporary dances, a third people with tango background, and then a third like visual artists and you know <laughs> other <laughs> category. And um, and actually, and at the end when people were giving feedback, that was something that came out. Some of the contemporary dancers said that it was, you know, that they, they do this kind of work, deep, somatic, you know, they're totally comfortable with that kind of work, but to do it with a totally diverse crowd, not just the same people. And of course, working with the same people, you can go deep, and there's a lot of benefits to that. But when it's only the same people, um, it was, yeah, so that was super gratifying, and it was hugely eye-opening for the tango uh, people. And so I was, yeah, I was really pleased with that. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the things as somebody who comes to the workshops relatively regularly that I find super rich about it is the diversity of people who show up and the diversity of people who are welcome. Like I remember the first time I sent an email to ask if I could be admitted into one of these workshops, like if I could register, I was still in school and I'm like, do I have to be a professional? Is it okay if I come? You know, and there was a bit of an explanation about the Emploi Québec aspect of it. So, um, because you're receiving funding, I understand from Emploi Québec. Yeah. Emploi Québec is restrictive. It's for professionals living in Montreal who aren't students. Um, but also we offer uh, non-subsidized workshops. So that's another thing we really have to balance because we want to keep them open, but we sort of, you know, we have to follow some of those guidelines. But at least a third of our workshops are independent. Yeah, and so I ended up taking something that um, wasn't subsidized, so it all worked out in the end. And it's, um, it, I, I guess it's just this wonderful um, community that forms and that, means that people are welcome to come, you know, like there's no, uh, there's no pressure. And, and that's glorious because there's a lot of times when, um, what's being proposed is very profound. What's being proposed as a, as a subject for the workshop for the week is very intensive. Um, it requires a lot of your attention and your, um, your mental and physical energy. And if there's this sort of pressure on top of that, that you have to perform because you're a technique class. Um, at least for me, that doesn't really work super well. So I think that um, that's been a really powerful thing to see and um, and understand about the role of Studio 303 is because when I come here, I see a lot of that, you know, a lot of people that I don't necessarily see at other kinds of class necessarily. So that's um, it's interesting to hear about all the different people who came this week. Because uh, I think that that's, from my experience of taking the workshops, very typical, actually. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the presentation series. And um, so when we begin to talk about presentation here, I know that in the last nine years that I've lived in Montreal, this this presentation series at 303 has just sort of shrunk and shrunk. And so maybe that's going to get us on the topic a little bit about funding. Um, but I wanted to discuss, before we discuss the cabaret, to discuss a little bit about edgy women and then now edgy redux and how the transition was made from one to the other and why. Okay. Well, this is Andrea. 
Um, and I'm actually, um, I'm, my official title is the technical director. And for the past couple of years, I've been co-curating and then taking on a bit more curation um, responsibilities while Miriam was on sabbatical for specifically Cabaret Trolley and Edgy Redux. So that's the perspective that I'm going to answer your question from. The transition between edgy women to edgy redux in 2013, uh, we suffered a rejection from Heritage Canada that significantly changed our presentation capabilities. Studio 303 ended up losing about 15% of its overall budget. That Those numbers actually translated into edgy losing 85% of its budget approximately. So what had grown in over 20 years into a three-week festival then had to dramatically be cut down to a three-day festival or three-day event. And um, it was actually Miriam's decision to rename um, from Edgy Women to Edgy Redux. I think I'll let you speak a bit more about that, but I think it just basically didn't, it, it was kind of unrecognizable at that point. So it needed to kind of be reborn as something else during the transition. I don't know. <laughs> I just didn't want people to think, yeah, to go, oh, why is the festival so small this year? You know, so it was really just the renaming felt important because, and also the the last edition of Edgy Women was also a kind of particularly spectacular one because it was the 20th anniversary and it had a really special focus. It was uh, art, sport, and gender. It took place on a hockey rink and in a... You know, we did a big happening with like 10 different artist groups um, in a boxing club. So it just felt like to go from that to a one-night cabaret, Nuit Blanche and a, and a conference, um, it wouldn't be, you know, that it, it would be hard to generate enthusiasm for the 21st edition <laughs> of the festival shrunken. <laughs> so we really decided, yeah, or I, I decided to call it edgy redux which actually i think i thought meant smaller and in fact doesn't mean smaller at all it means remix or a new perspective or repeat repeat. (laughs) so it still makes sense but not the way (laughs) i thought and i'm not the only one who thought redux meant smaller (laughs) um yeah and so it was an opportunity also to just kind of zooming zoom in on stuff as well and yeah so this year, um, Edgy takes the form of three events, if I'm not mistaken. So there's uh, a Wikithon, and um, there'll be a cabaret evening. And then there's also uh, All Nuit Long, which is the Nuit Blanche event. Um, I was here last year on Nuit Blanche, and there was like a marathon of video and performance. I think I, by the time I got here, it was like 3.30 in the morning. It was, and it was still going. And it was, uh, it was really amazing, actually, the, to see sort of, I wish I had been there at the beginning of the evening and then to see at the end of the evening, because there was this sort of... Um, the energy was very particular. Let's put it that way, that it, uh, there was this sort of, uh, determination and perseverance aspect to the end of the evening, which was, um, really interesting and also sort of a weird gonzo atmosphere of like, we're so exhausted. Now what can happen? Oh, we can play the same video 15 times in a row and it can just evolve and evolve. <laughs> so, um, it was wonderful. It was really great. And, uh, um, I love that the that 
edgy gives voice to very particular kinds of artists and has, um, a, a really, uh, like I knew as soon as I walked through the door, I was really going to have an experience. Um, when I got here, like it was not going to be like anything else going on at the Belgo building on Nuit Blanche. So can you speak to maybe a little bit about the three events? Why, why those things and what you're looking forward to about those things? Okay. Um, well, um, one of the survival measures that was um, given to us by the board after the big cut in 2013 was uh, the request to re essentially create a season template and repeat that template three years in a row while we sort of like took stock, um, you know, gathered up some resources and momentum and then envision the future. So we, of course, we um, have been uh, engaging different themes and artists, but the sort of concepts of these events have been similar. So that's this, that's true for Edgy as well. So for three years in a row for Edgy Redux, we've done a Nuit Blanche event, a cabaret event, and some kind of um, colloque or community kind of workshop or public event that entails a lot of conversation. The way that's manifesting this year, um, under the theme, which is the end. Actually, before I get um, too much on that subject, I just want to mention that the the Nuit Blanche event that you're describing from last year, the um, the uh, piece of art uh, that you got a chance to witness and experience is um, a, a interactive curation by Angela Gabbaro and Coral Short. Um, who are video performance and digital artists. And um, what they had done is they put a call out to um, artists to create video projections of the future and then created an online website that um, randomly creates a tarot spread for you with those with a random selection of three video videos. And then you watch them and you can you can inter interpret them like you would any uh tarot card spread so you can decide sort of like you know how you want to read them but um it was the only the second time the piece has ever been presented and it was the very first time it had been presented with mcs and it had been and the mcs were in character and there were two of them so that was part of what like created this weird gonzo layer that you're talking about and i remember the moment that you're talking about and it was really interesting but that's that interpretation was thanks to alexis o'hara and hannah morrow who were the MCs that night. So anyway, for this um, edition, last edition, the theme was magic or yeah, feminist magic, depending on how you read it. And um, this year, the, the theme is the end because we are putting Edgy to bed after 23 years. Um, so uh, the way that the three events got selected, I think, was probably a combination between discussion with the board and... So a lot of it has to do with um, uh, trying to be as cost-effective as possible and still be able to, to provide programming that's interesting for the audience that we've cultivated over 23 years. So we do get funding from the city for Nuit Blanche. That helps take care of that event. We put together funding from our the small amount of interdisciplinary presentation funding that we have to create um, a, a, a cabaret program for one evening. And then the community event or colloque event, or this year it's going to be the Wikithon, is very, like, 
it's really minimum input, maximum output. It doesn't really cost anything. So that's how we're able to produce that event. So basically, I mean, it's all, for lack of a better term, it's all we can afford. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a lot of added value and nostalgia. Um, this year, uh, in light of the theme of the end, I, um, Miriam was really generous, and after she returned back from her sabbatical, she invited me to take on the programming for this year. And in return, I gave her all of Nuit Blanche to program an edgy retrospective. Um, so I'm really looking forward to what she pulls out of the archives, both video work and video documentation of performance work. So we're in the process of digitizing that and Miriam's pouring through it and we're going to come up with something, a really interesting blast from the past. And um, the cabaret this year will take place at the Lyon d'Or. It's a bit of a departure from other years at different points in Edgy's history, we've collaborated with lots of different venues, galleries, um, performance venues like Mainline Theater and the Salarosa, Tangente, La Centrale, Articule, Eastern Bloc. So this year we're hosting the cabaret at the Lyon d'Or, which is slightly larger than the venue we've been working with previously, the Salarosa, um, and has the added benefit of being a ground level access point so people in mobility devices can access it much easier than they would be in, able to in the Salarosa. Um, and from a performer's perspective, it has an enormous dressing room. So, yeah, and it has a bit of, yeah, it does have that glamorous Art Deco, Art Nouveau, Art Deco style, vintage speakeasy cabaret look. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 do you want me to talk about the programming that's in process? I would love to hear about the programming. I also want to just add that um, I think it's so interesting that you're doing this retrospective for Nuit Blanche because I feel like in the last like, couple of years in the Quebec dance ecology, there's been a lot of like 30th anniversaire, you know, like over to go. And then, um, you know, the RQD had its anniversary and there's like all of this um, sort of retrospective energy. <laughs> like, you know, the RQD is collecting all these photos and um, there's a, I think that also, there's a sense in in the kind of political landscape that we've been existing in, and and the funding landscape. Also, there's been a sense of like, perhaps, man, you remember what it was like when we could do the things that we wanted to do, or or when we imagined that we could do the things that we wanted to do, um, and maybe if we conjure that with passion and intensity and, and revive it and, and think about it um, and dwell on it, then it will somehow manifest itself into an equally glorious moment in time. Um, and I, I've been thinking a lot about that energy because there's a sense as somebody who, um, you know, only graduated from a dance program a couple of years ago and that kind of thing. Um, there's a sense of like, Sometimes, and when we discuss it amongst ourselves, you know, those of us who, if it hasn't been very long that we've participated in the community, there's a sense of like, well, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Mm -hmm. I think that I'm interested to know, uh, I'm, I'm like so interested to see this retrospective, but I'm also interested to know about what you're doing for, for Edgy um, 
unrelated to my comment completely. <laughs> I'm also, uh, I'm just so pleased that Andrea decided to, accepted to take it on because, uh, I mean, she, she's done a fabulous job the, the past few years, but also I'm just, I'm really bad at endings and, um, you know, she's, I think, going to do a really worthy ending, you know, finally, a good final ending. <laughs> cool. So tell us about the rest of the, the, the cabaret programming. Thank you. Um, well, let's see. So I've, I've been enjoying experimenting with different themes and ways of curating. It's new for me over the past couple of years. Um, but knowing that edgy is, that this will be the last edition, um, for me, it really necessitated a good, a good, like good closure. Uh, edgy is the thing that got me through the door at Studio 303. It really brought me in and engaged me and is, has been dear to my heart as a newcomer, latecomer, you know, from, of my, personal um perspective and um uh it's been important to me to find ways to involve uh people the people who helped the artists who helped build the festival so i want to tell you about the programming but it's still two and a half months away so there are still a lot of things being nailed down and i just really hesitate to say too much because there's a lot that's still knocking around in my brain but what i can tell you is that we'll have a mixed um, cabaret performance program at the Lyon d'Or. We, we, we have a certain amount of artists that are on board. I can, I'll, I'll name names. Um, I'll name a few names. So we're really excited to have, uh, Natalie Claude returned from her world tour, her three, four year world tour with Cirque du Soleil, uh, back on board with us for the final edgy. Um, sharing the stage with her will be definitely Dana McLeod, who's an Anglophone um, uh, performance artist, video artist here in Montreal. Um, Alexis O'Hara, who's an edgy favorite, um, frequently emceeing with us at Studio 303 for our, our off-site cabarets. Um, she's a musician and a drag king and um, kind of a comedian in some ways. Um, so, as, I mean, there, I, there are a few other people... Uh, uh, confirmed and um, others that are strong maybes and a few more that are very nebulous and vague at the moment. So I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there, but just to put that buzz and excitement out there. Yeah, the wiki thought. So the third the third event will be um, the community event, which will be this year instead of a conference or an artist talks, so it will be a wiki thon. So I've been really interested and inspired by um, uh, the. Um, feminist edit-a-thon events that have been happening for the past two or three years around the same time as International Women's Day, which are an effort to um, address the bias that's present in a lot of articles online in uh, in Wikipedia, the online um, open source encyclopedia. So uh, edgy women at the moment is a 23 year festival that only has like a two or three paragraph stub article. Um, and there are dozens and dozens of performers that have been through the festival over the years. And I think each of them, like each season needs a, an article and each 
artist needs um, a hyperlink. So uh, we'll set, set we'll set up shop in this in the studio. And Amber Bierson, who is um, an art historian and uh, Wikipedia feminist wiki editathon expert, will be leading a workshop, a how-to workshop on how to edit uh, Wikipedia um, articles. And we'll pull out the archives and sift through them and. It'll be a collaborative effort, and it'll be a community event, and we'll share some stories and learn a lot and laugh a lot and maybe shed a few tears, and it'll be, in my opinion, one of the best ways to say goodbye. Yeah, yeah I think that the important thing about doing a good ending <laughs> is that whole issue of legacy as well, and one of the kind of subtitles of the event theme is uh, Edgy is Dead, Long Live Edgy, and I think that's a really beautiful way to encapsulate it and there's this you know by looking through the archives and digitalizing stuff then that's it's looking past but to create content for future consultation and uh, same with the wikithon and i think that's so precious that andrea thought of that like i'm really really glad that she did and then just kind of ironically um I've been invited to curate an edgy program in June in New York uh, at Performance Mix, which was um, uh, an or with the New Dance Alliance, an organization with which that we, we did an artist exchange for about 10 years, and it often revolved around edgy because the artistic director is feminist and was often performed in that context. So, so I think that's nice timing. You know, when she invited, she said, I know you're probably going to say no because it's over. And I said, no, Edgy's dead, but long live Edgy. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's fantastic. No, that sounds like a, a delightful event. Like, I feel like there'll be like cookies and, uh, and editing. That sounds fantastic. Um, so I guess that now we've sort of discussed a little bit of the presentation and we've discussed a little bit about the training, um, and so the creation aspect of, of the studio, of course, it is a studio. It's enormous. If you never, like, to the people who are listening, if you have never been in the studio, it's probably, I think it's the prettiest studio in Montreal. It's, like, the floor is gorgeous. It's got all these windows. It's beautiful in the spring. It's beautiful in the winter. I love being here. It's like a magical space as far as I'm concerned. So, um, and it's a magical space for a lot of the artists who are able to participate in creation residencies here. So there's some creation residencies that have to do directly with things that you're presenting, like metamorphose, um, some of the other presentation aspects are associated with some time in the studio. And then they're also just sort of pure creation residencies that um, are not necessarily attached to something that is has a fixed product date. So um, can you tell us a little bit about how that creation residency system happens and, and why uh, Studio 303 continues to do that work? You know, I think it's funny. I think a lot of residencies began because space wasn't being used, and and 303 is one of those places. It's like there was just not enough action in the summer, and we thought, well, we should really give this away, you know? And it evolved into something that was funded, and, you know, and then now it's, I think, summer's become this strong time for residencies because actually it's not just here. It's other places, too. Um 
So it's kind of an off time when we don't have uh, evening renters, we don't have uh, workshops scheduled on a regular basis. Uh, so we're able to give significant chunks of time away, sometimes 24-hour access when necessary. So we have the summer residency program that is more geared uh, towards exploring and research, and you don't have to have um, an end product in mind at all, and you're, you can show work in progress, and we can invite people if you want, and it's fairly open-ended, so... And then at Christmas, um, over the Christmas holidays, we have uh, a technical residency that's more like you have access to everything, 24 hours, here's the key, can you water the plants? <laughs> so that's for artists who, I mean, it could be research-based as well, but it, it, it tends to be given to people who have a show and they just need to work out the lights or something worthy where they need the 24-hour access. And that's only for artists we already have a relationship with because... We're not really, it's really a self-directed residency, so they need to know the space well and we need to know them well. And then uh, the other kinds, other than the commissioning projects, which you mentioned, where a residency is attached to something we're presenting in front of a public, um, we try to establish exchanges as well. So we had one with Paris for three years with Mandeuvre there, where two of our artists and residents would receive an additional residency and get to go to Paris and work in a new context um, with a new audience if they were going to show the work in progress. And then we would receive artists in return. And um, for the upcoming season, it's, it's a, I hope will be a recurring relationship with Vermont Performance Lab. Totally different, very rural environment. Um, and they're the only real... I think the only constraint is that the artists have to drive. <laughs> That's kind of, there's always weird things, you know. Um, it's really necessary for this residency, but the, we went, Andrea and I, to visit um, the facilities, and it's, it's really it's a spectacular thing, and it's very organic and hands-on, and Sarah Kofi, the artistic director there, is super invested, and so it'll be, yeah, that's great. It's, it's the way to get your foot in the door as a as an artist, because we don't have the capability to purchase your show and present it anymore. Um, if you don't already have a relationship with us and you'd like to develop one, I, re I recommend applying for the residencies. Um, the more we see your work in development and feel attached to it, the more likely we are to find different ways of presenting your work in the future. Speaking of not being able to purchase things, I think that in the, the ongoing um, financial situation that we find ourselves in as um, people making artwork in Canada and in Montreal specifically, one of the things that Studio 3 does is... Um, Auto production, so you can rent Studio 303 and present your own work here. So I have um, friends and colleagues who've done that, and I think that that's a really interesting way also to get your foot in the door, not only of the studio necessarily, but like presenting. <laughs> period. Because um, I think that there's a, a sense of frustration that can happen where it's like you want to make things and you want people to look at the things that you made. Um, but like, gosh darn it, nobody's giving you any money to do. To two years. Or you have to wait two years. And so, and there's this sort of sense, the, the work loses its immediacy sometimes. It loses its um, 
sense of place in your own existence as an artist. Like you, you make it and then two years later, somebody's like, Oh, finally, like take it to France and show it there. And it's like, well, I mean, one of my dancers has a beard now. It's a totally different piece. Um, so <laughs> there's, uh, there's a sense that like the, the passage of time. And I mean, I mean, for heaven's sake, it's wonderful to be given an opportunity to present the work period. But I, I'm interested to know how much people are presenting their work through Studio 303 right now, self-presenting their work, and um, if that's something that continues to be an interest of Studio 303. At the moment, we average about eight independent productions per year. Um, so that's based on my observation over the past three and a half years. I have a feeling it was higher in years pre just previous to that. Maybe not much higher, but probably I would guess that we would probably expect about one per month, mm -hmm. maybe. So maybe 10, mm -hmm. eight to 10 per year. At the moment, it averages around eight. So can you give me like maybe a, a mini rundown? I know that there's definitely information on the website. So if that's something that interests you, uh, dear listener, then um, please cho go check it out on the website. It's in French and in English. And... Um, but maybe you could, like, who who is the best candidate for self-presentation, in your opinion? I mean, my my instinct was to say somebody with a credit card or somebody somebody with a little a little chunk of savings, uh, or or a little bit of seed money. Um, it depends on how you run your 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 production. Frankly, um, we have uh, we have. Um, in term, if your question is about content, uh, we're not super picky. If you're part of the dance community, we want to talk to you. Um, our limitations really revolve around: is does it technically, is it technically feasible in this space? And yeah, and is it um, financially feasible for you? So we we have everything from um, you know non-seated audience installate you know kind of installation experiential sort of things musical concerts um contemporary dance performances as independent productions in this space sometimes we rent it out for non-party parties celebrations of different kinds i guess maybe um maybe I, I phrased my question in a way that was weird what i'm wondering is if you look at over the time, as, as you see people um, who either, in your opinion, have been successful in, in their um, self-production or who they themselves feel mm -hmm. successful, what, can you pick out some of the characteristics of either what they were presenting, how they were presenting it, or um, what the resources were that they drew on in order to make that a successful experience for themselves? It is really diverse. You know, it's sometimes it's super recent graduates. Sometimes it's um, students that have gotten together to uh, present their classwork. Um, sometimes it's a touring comp company from New Zealand, you know, um, like a, a really polished high production values company that just happens to love Studio 303 or needs a venue at that moment. Um, sometimes it's people presenting dissertation exploration for their PhD. I can't think of any recent names because, whoops, rah, just because I just can't. <laughs> but um, there have been some 
you know, people that started out like that and that are now being presented in, in proper <laughs> circumstances. But um, I think that the important thing about the independent productions is just, yeah, that you can just get on it and you don't have to wait. I think it's hard when you're in the piece and you're producing it. Yeah. I think that's really hard. Um, and that, or if you're kind of a collective, that there isn't sort of the spokesperson or your production manager or your technical director, you know. But it's a really learning experience, too, because you, you, I think you learn where to put your energy, where, which battles to <laughs> pick, etc. Mm -hmm. Because you've got to do it in really limited time, you know. A lot of um, inexperienced uh, performers, not performers, and people who are inexperienced at putting on shows will, will not realize um, how much work every lighting cue is, etc. So I think Andrea provides guidelines and you know Andrea and our website about like we recommend not more than this many lighting cues not many not more than this many specials just to give people a few pointers and repères you know and then we have workshops like um, Paul Chambers lighting 101 that is really just so that dance artists and other artists can just understand how to communicate their needs efficiently and also how to scale back their needs, I guess, when necessary and where to, just where to put your energy. Um, and then we also have an online publication that's called Taking the Leap that was written by Concordia graduate and longtime 303 staff member Lee Stevens, who's now freelancing, I think, at the Canada Council. And um, this was, a, you know, a project that she really initiated and it's amazing. It's it's full of amazing information um, to help, uh, yeah, young artists self-produce for the first time. <laughs> so Miriam was referring to an online guide we have in the section under independent productions. There is a template on there that's a suggestion of how to run your schedule for an independent production. And I just want to say, like, you can deviate from that schedule any, you know, any way that you see fit. Um, that template suggests two, three, or four presentations over one weekend, but we have plenty of, of um, engagements that only do one presentation, for example. So really, if you, if you it's it, it can be a bit confusing to see you, how to fit your project into our space sometimes. Just pick up the phone, give us a call, ask some questions, and we'll figure it out with you. Cool. So um, your short uh, mention of the Canada Council um, brings me to a sort of meaty subject, which leads us into um, the Cabaret Tolle. So I'm interested to know where Studio 3 is at, 303 is at with its funding. Um, and so my understanding is, is that you lost the Canada Heritage funding, which is a, a longer term piece of funding. It's not necessarily something that you apply for every year. Because it was consistent, we treated it as a kind of long term. But in fact, it is something you have to apply for every year. So I guess that um, if you go back, uh, dear listener, and listen to our um, podcast number 63, I believe it is, uh, we did an interview here, um, Allison and JD and Stephanie came um, to talk about the first Cabaret Tolle and about the sudden and devastating loss of funding. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, 
interesting and frankly shocking um, backstory that's contained within that podcast. So I'm going to make some references to it here, maybe give a little background to how much money uh, was cut. And then there was a decision that you made to, to boycott the process of applying. And I'm wondering how that has gone. And if now that we do have a different uh, federal government, what the approach 303 is taking will be now. Okay. Um, so our funding situation right now, um, we're fine for this year and next year things will be probably pretty similar. But next year is the time when all the applications that uh, we write are going to be kind of game-changing applications, possibly. So at the, um, at the provincial and municipal level, the CALC and the CAM, this is the only source of funding we have that's called operating and that is recurring. So whatever we get, we'll get for four years. So it's, it's really important, especially the calc, because it's also the most, the biggest amount we get. But I have no idea what's going on at the calc right now. The, the deadline was supposed to be in February. It's been postponed another year because they don't really know what's going on either. There's talk of removing the disciplines. Um, they, I, I, I don't know how they're going to do that. You know, they've made big changes already for artists applying. There's no more deadlines. So, Anytime there's change, there's chaos, and hopefully it'll be really great things that will come of this, and, and I'm glad there's change, but it's also a little terrifying. Um, also, we've been in the category of a presenter, because there isn't a category for hybrid organizations. So that's the category we were in, and I think it served us well, because there was a lot of lobbying and a push that that presenting, specialized presenters needed more uh, investment. So that's that kind of category did better than, for example, services, service organizations, which we are as much of as a presenter for sure. They, they received a cut because it was perceived that, that the whole sector of, of service organizations for some reason, you know, I don't know why, but that decision was made that they could lose 25% of their funding. So, phew, I'm so glad, even though I was fighting, I'm like, we're not a presenter, we're not. I'm glad that we were stuck in the beneficial category last year. What will happen in the future? I don't know. Will there be those categories? I don't know. So it's going to be such a lot of work <laughs> to think around that. Uh, at the Canada Council, also major changes. They're, they're shrinking, what, 150 programs into six or something cuckoo crazy like that and removing also um, disciplines. And, you know, th there's a lot of things in me that are like, yes, shrink those 150 into six, get rid of the disciplines. But then when you read about them, it's like, what? Like, it's really hard to find the, the six categories are, you know, they're things like engage and create and, you know, this kind of words where you're like, well, I do all of those, you know, or we do all of this. So, so we'll see. Um, <laughs> and I know that hopefully the, their budget will be doubled. I don't know if that will trickle down to places like 303, who knows, you know, because you'll, you'll see some governments like our provincial government has a major hard on for all things technological. So, you know, 
as long as there's like lots of equipment involved, you know, there's really like a lot of money. Any all extra money was kind of put there, despite a consultation with Amelia, where all the well, I don't know about all the disciplines, but dance and interdisciplinary were like, no, <laughs> no, actually, we don't need more money for technological stuff. We just need more money, you know, to eat and stuff. So <laughs> anyway, so it's kind of frustrating. And then I think at the Canada Council, I get a sense that the, and perhaps that's also with the calc, that there's um, a lot of the extra money is going to go into being more inclusive of forms that have been traditionally excluded from professional arts milieu. So traditionally based or, you know, traditional contemporary, um, culturally based stuff. I'm not, you know, this is just the feeling I have. Um, so, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see what will happen with that. So did I talk about, and then heritage, yeah. Um, heritage is the grant that's the most pain in the ass to write of all time because it's not a grant where you just say what you think. You have to kind of make sure you say the word Canadian every, you know, two sentences. Um, <laughs> it's also, um, it's like a really crazy legal document. You're, you're entering an engagement with the queen. You have to kind of, you know, if, if you don't put ink at the end, like incorporate, you know, if things aren't, all your T's aren't crossed, they'll send it back to you. It's really annoying because that's where the energy goes. And it's super, they have a different fiscal year that you have to adhere to. So you can't be like, here's what we spend in our year according to our financial statements. They're like, no, we only want to know until March. And then the other three months you talk about it. anyway. So there's a lot of things that are, are hard about it. And it's also, it's got, it's not a qualitative. They don't ask any qualitative questions. It's just quantity, quantity. How many Canadians are you reaching? How many Canadians are you changing? How many Canadians are you enriching? How, you know, it's really this kind of line of questioning. So, um, so, you know, when we, I, I decided that with the board support and the staff as well, that yes, we would boycott that grant. Mostly because we weren't, it, you know, we had we had come to depend on it for, it's a presenting grant, so it's the only grant that pays for only presenting. And yes, it's a project grant, but when you've received a project grant for 12 years in a row, and the amounts have been fairly stable, and sometimes they've gone down a bit, and when they've gone down, you've had a long conversation and found out why it went down, and then you try and address that issue... You know, it, it feels like a recurring grant, and um, so you treat it like a recurring grant. So, I think one of the things that um, I've been thinking about about the concept of of the recurring grant, and sometimes there's an attitude, perhaps um, that we sometimes as artists run into, like when we go home for Christmas or another holiday and have a conversation with our family, um, and somebody in the family doesn't understand, like, well, I mean, you're just lucky to get it at all. <laughs> there are lots of people who applied for that grant, and uh, like, you know, I guess you'll just have to make do is the idea. And I guess that maybe what I would like you to explain is um, it, probably better than I can, what a recurring grant or something that appears to be, for all intents and purposes, a recurring grant provides in terms of um, a, a, a capacity 
for an organization and then what that means in the greater artist ecology that the organization has capacity. And maybe you could speak to that a little bit and about why a recurring grant is actually super important. Well, in, in the arts, you really do have to plan years ahead and you cannot plan if you don't have a recurring source of funding or anything you can count on, especially in this day and age with, I mean, you know, there was a time when space was really cheap and, um, you know, and everybody was on welfare and could live on it and had time to work for free. And, you know, when you're in that kind of economy, it's, it's not the same, but when it's, uh, when, yeah, costs are rising and you, you already need to find new sources constantly because rent goes up, salaries go up, things go up. But recurring grants stay the same. So you, you already have to, you know, fight for, to get all that extra stuff. But, um, it's super important. But it's, it's important because when you hire people, you sign usually a one year contract as well. So if you want people to be, uh, if you want to be paying income tax and, you know, all those systems and enter into that economy, then you have to be able to plan ahead and, uh, and you can't do it without recurring money. And also there's the, the issue of, of staff turnover. If every year you don't know whether you're going to be able to employ four, five, 10, 17 people, um, then what, how do you, how does a, an organization build its own memory? How does an organization create, uh, it's like something like 303 that's been going on for a long time now. I mean, like most of my lifetime, it's been in existence. So I mean, that requires some institutional memory and institutional memory is not just an archive. It's a, it's people too. And so, I mean, it has to be hard to be able to keep people, um, and, and help them thrive and grow in their, in their roles, um, and in their careers. If you can't guarantee that you can pay them. It's really hard. Um, I mean, we we don't have a super high staff turnover right now, but still, I think, I think the it, it's hard right now. We're understaffed, and I think that's harder even than the not great salary sometimes because we've done a lot of things to try and make it nicer <laughs> here, like you know, flexible hours and um, raises when we can and. Uh, just a pleasant working environment and this kind of thing. But then when you, when it really boils down to it, when you're, when you're understaffed, you end up spending a lot of your time doing things that don't feel, um, meaningful. Um, and, and that, and it becomes exhausting in a different way. You know, I think, how can we be exhausted? We're working 35 hours a week. There's a really like no overtime policy at 303 that's really strong. Like, I mean, sometimes you have to, but you take it back. You know, it's not a job where you're expected to work. Mm -hmm. So we really, I'm really, I've tried a lot to compensate for the low salary with all those kinds of perks. But the biggest perk of all is to be able to pay the occasional staff, right? Um, nicely and that would therefore to be to have good support um and to just yeah feel like you have time to do what your job requires and to do it well that's very rewarding <laughs> um so yeah 
Yeah, so I guess that now I'm I'm interested to understand. So this is the third Cabaret Tolle, and we now exist in sort of a, a funding situation that's very Kickstarter, Indiegogo oriented, and there's um, most arts organizations run a fundraiser um, at least once a year. There's an ongoing giving program. There are lots of things that um, arts organizations do sort of behind the scenes in order to sustain themselves. And so is that what Cabaret Tolle is? Or is it more than that? I don't know if I should say this, but I don't think most organizations do fundraising because they need the money. I think they do fundraising because funders tell them they have to do a fundraising event. And um, that's really hard because a lot of organizations, I mean, maybe some really good things are coming out of that. You know, it's not, it's not all bad, but it's, it, it is a huge amount of energy. And if you count how much energy it is and how much funds you raise, when you're not a, an organization that has lots of business people on the board with contacts and this and that, it's rarely actually worth the effort, but you have to do it. So if you have to do it, you might as well make it into something you really care about and that's in line with your mandate and that's fun. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is a new experiment with a fundraiser. We've done other kinds in the past. Um, and this is, and uh, it's, but it, you know, it's also, it was bringing together when it was created, it was really created in response to the heritage cut. So it was an anti-Harper <laughs> cabaret, a political cabaret, um, and the fundraiser was used also as a way of underlining the amount of money we had lost, and so it all tied in together nicely at that point. So that was the the first one, including um, Alexis O'Hara's amazing uh, Stephen Harper papier mâché head, um, which. Uh, I'm sure we can find for the listeners to have a look at a picture of it. This is truly fantastic. Um, so that was the first one was a very like response situation. And then there's been one subsequently at the earlier part of this year in January. And now you've changed the, the time of the Cabaret Tolle in the season. Um, but I guess I'm wondering now, what is the, what is the role and what is, what is, what are we going to see at the cabaret now that there's no big, bad, peppy mashy head to get angry at? <laughs> or is there? Is, are we going to see a, a Trudeau uh, head? <laughs> you have to come and find out. Um, it's a good question. I think, um, um, I mean, it's, um, Cabaret Tolle has been trying to figure out its identity for the past three editions. Um, it was definitely born as an anti-Harper cabaret. We're, we've tried over the years to create a platform for artists to rant and rave about whatever is important to them that they're experiencing, you know, in terms of politically um, and in terms of current events. And um, so it's uh, we, we've used words like anti-austerity to describe it in the past. You know, the first year seemed pretty federally focused. We've tried at different points to kind of encourage the artists to to look at issues from different angles. This year, we're stepping into a really different 
political energy for sure. Um, definitely federally, there is a lot of hope on the landscape and questions about the future. Is it, you know, does it, does it make sense to, to rant and rave anymore? And my personal opinion is yes, absolutely. Like there's certain struggles that just never die. Um, so, I mean, uh, we're seeing, we're still seeing, we're seeing a lot, uh, the, uh, the taps getting turned back on federally, but we're still seeing a lot of penny pinching and cutting at the provincial level. Um, so, uh, what we'll see next Saturday at the Salarosa um, will still be uh, quintessential cabaret, darlings of the Montreal cabaret scene performing. Um, Funny, thought-provoking, very musical, deeply political commentary on the current state of events. There may or may not be certain impressions of certain high-profile politicians who are newer to the national scene. Um, there may or may not be... Uh, um, a re-emergence of certain paper mache based <laughs> beloved relics of Cabaret Tolle's past. Um, I don't want to give too much away. I think it's really worth it for listeners to come and check it out. Yeah, I think that I, as I was preparing to speak to you, then there's um, the, the question of, you know, Harper versus Trudeau is really... Uh, been really present for the last couple of months, you know, this idea that like, you know, it's 2015, that's why we have all these women in cabinet, there's, um, you know, he's so, he's so shiny and, <laughs> and new looking, you know, like, my goodness, and it's, it's such a, it's such a different government from a, an image perspective, from, from the way it looks from the outside, it's, it's very different, but I mean, the, I think that the question that um, a lot of artists that I know have been having, and a lot of people generally, especially people who have a particular political um, interest, have been saying is like, well, but is it really different? And I guess that that's what we're going to find out in the new funding cycle. We're going to find out in the next couple of months in terms of foreign policy decisions, all those kinds of things. But it's true that provincially we're definitely living something very particular. Um, I, is there, uh, is anybody going to, um, uh, satirize the OUZ, uh, the, the massive dump? I would, that's, that's the one I'd love to see. Yes, I think yes, you will. Uh, I think the dump will be making an appearance at the cabaret. Yeah, maybe kind of twice. Um, yeah, it's interesting what comes up, you know, because there are also a couple of, you know, Harper. He's not. I mean, he'll have a send off for sure. Like he's making an appearance too. And but it's interesting. We can't control the content, you know. We just invite the artists and then see. And it was very, we were very anxious about programming this year because I felt, I felt like we couldn't complete the programming until after the election because it might give us more of an idea of who we might need to, I don't know. I, I just felt so insecure without knowing those results. Um, and then, so it's a bit, it's been a bit rushed, you know, and then the artists, I mean, how on earth can you know what you're, what you're going to, piece is going to be about until 
you've digested mm, what's yeah. going on as well. Um, so, so it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be a weird year. <laughs> so let's maybe, um, just have a little, um, go through of the artists who that we're, we're going to see. So, um, Jacqueline Vandegeer and Jesse Orr, uh, Madame et Matante, Two Boys TV, Tufik and Alexis O'Hara performing together. Mm -hmm. Then Glam Gam, um, who are definitely, uh, you want to talk about darlings of the uh, cabaret scene. They've been producing a lot of work, so it would be very interesting to see them in a, in a different context. Mobile Home and Projet Iberis. And then uh, there'll be a mini concert by Hua Li. Two Boys TV, I think. Um, and that's another uh, two artists who have had a long history with Studio 303. So um, that's that's who's coming. Um, so it'll be, uh, there'll be definitely some performance art. Is there going to be dancing? I think we're going to see dance on stage, obviously, um, because there's a lot of music involved in all of uh, many of the acts. Um, but we don't have... It's sort of like the, a classical, typical Studio Three Hundred Three contemporary dance performance in this particular program. We did invite we did invite some uh, contemporary choreographers, and it just didn't work out. And we're disappointed about that. It mm -hmm. would have been nice to have some. Yeah, it's strange for a Three Hundred Three event to not have a contemporary dance artist on stage, but we've got them at the turntables, the yeah. virtual turntables. <laughs> yes, yeah, you have um, uh, Elena Kreischfeld. And then David Albert Toth is also. Um, so that's, I mean, how fantastic. Yeah. And Len, Yan Li Chen is a lighting designer for rubber, uh, rubber Band Dance and former technical director at Studio 303 and part-time magician. So he's going to be doing some uh, austerity-themed magic tricks at the austerity cocktail before the show. I was going to ask if the austerity cocktail is on this year. And then at the austerity cocktail... There is a silent auction. So the, the silent auction will go on before and then will close at intermission. So yeah, that's the time to check out the silent auction is before. And yeah, we've got, that's when Jacqueline Van de Geer and Jesse Orr are also performing. They're going to have a kind of, um, little solo intimate performance that goes on and Jan doing his magic tricks and the kind of surprise act, um, who's not listed here, um, uh, yeah, should I hush about it? The special guest. Special guest. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. A special guest. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. I love this. This whole episode has just been filled with teasers. I feel like I'm on YouTube. This is fantastic. So, um, what kind of things, it, uh, same, similar types of uh, items at the silent auction, uh, tickets, Massages. No massages this year. I don't know. Yeah. We're, we have less this year and we're not doing the online auction. We just didn't have the resources to put it together. So less items, um, but the same kind of thing, like passes. We also have a, a, like a tirage. We're going to have a draw for people who pay $20 at the door. They'll get entered into a draw for two passes for the Festival Nouveau Cinema. Um, we're going to do a bit more live auctioning too because it's so much fun. So new prizes this year are like escape room adventure for four people what's an escape room? you don't know about them they're super fun it's uh, these rooms where you go in for an hour and you have to figure out clues and stuff in order to escape and 
open other things. It's it's really fun. You do detective work with friends for an hour, <laughs> so we're excited about that. And uh, yeah, and there's oh, there's one really great prize. It's a five hundred dollars or five hundred. Yeah, it wouldn't be five hundred hours. I think it's five hundred dollar residency at the May. So that's that's pretty significant. Uh, this year we're also going to have because of the season. We're going to have more affordable little gifties um, at a table, and uh, Kelly Keenan's going to be looking after that. Uh, she's going to be selling a little. She's obsessed with uh, orphan mittens that you see on the street, and she's been photographing them uh, obsessively for I don't know how many years, and um, doing um, performances based on them and all that. And she made a little like a memory game where you match the mittens. Um, so I guess she created like the other half, you know, of these poor orphan mittens. So she's going to be selling that. It's a little cute, uh, yeah, homegrown, uh, little game, memory game. And then, uh, a neighbor of mine creates, uh, she's one of the people that creates this, uh, delicious lemonade syrup, uh, called Limo. It's absolutely yummy. And so we're going to be selling bottles of that and also gift certificates for Studio 303. So... People can buy, you know, a five dollar gift certificate, hundred bucks, whatever they want. So, yay! Cool. I think uh, one of the things that I just want to highlight is the idea that you didn't have the resources to put together adequate fundraising or or more significant fundraising. And so, I guess that maybe. Um, unless we have anything else really pressing to discuss. I'm just very excited about this cabaret. Um, I just want to leave on that note. And hopefully, um, I think that you're right, um, that there's a, a more of a, a hopeful atmosphere now. And I'm interested to see how that influences the performances or maybe we'll just like turn our rage on something else. Um, and uh, how how things can progress in the future. So um, the Cabaret Tole will be at La Sala Rosa, which does have several uh, flights of stairs mm -hmm. to get into it, just from an accessibility point of view. Um, but it is on the 19th of December. It's preceded by the Austerity Cocktail. So it begins at 8 p.m., um, which will be the Austerity Cocktail and the Silent Auction, and then at 9 p.m., the start of the performances. And then at 11, there's the DJ and the dance party. So, frankly, you can make a whole evening out of it. Um, and so the Sala Rosa is at 4848 Saint Laurent, which is uh, just um, near Saint-Joseph. Um, so you can take the bus, which would be very Austerity-themed. And... Um, uh, I just want to thank you so much for giving your time to us um, for this hour of conversation. I really enjoyed myself, and um, I hope that the listeners are able to learn something about this studio and eventually come and see this gorgeous studio if they've never seen it before. Just come and roll around on the floor, you guys. <laughs> it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, thank a, thanks a lot. Thank you. Pleasure. The Dirty Feet Podcast is produced and hosted by Produit et animé par Alison Burns J.D. Papillon and Stephanie Morin-Robert We have Mainline Theatre, Montreal Improv Theatre and Paula Flalo to thank. Merci pour le soutien. 
Vous pouvez visiter notre site web, écouter les derniers épisodes, lire notre blog, nous aimer sur Facebook et nous suivre sur Twitter. You can visit our website, listen to past episodes, read our blog, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Show us some love and help us spread the word. Montrez-nous un peu d'amour et aidez-nous à passer le mot.